0: Hi everyone, this is Dr. Kate Merriweather and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today we're going to be discussing a 31-year-old woman admitted for induction of labor. We're going to be talking about why and when you would induce labor, the active management of labor in a hospital setting, and how one diagnoses abnormal labor or abnormal fetal heart rate tracing. I'm Dr. Kate Merriweather, editor for the OBGYN Beyond the Pearls book series, and you can tweet at me at katemerriweather1. Today we're going to talk about a 31-year-old woman admitted for induction of labor. For those of you following along in the book, this is case 17 in the OBGYN Beyond the Pearls on page 115. It was written by Dr. Joseph Abhishek Jain, a clinical fellow in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center in New York, New York, and also written by Dr. Ellen Mazurkowitz, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, University of New Mexico. So let's go to our patient. She's a 31-year-old G1P0 woman at 37 weeks gestation admitted for a scheduled induction of labor due to a pregnancy complicated by oligohydramnios. So what is an induction of labor? Labor induction involves the use of medications or techniques to facilitate uterine contractions and stimulate the process of labor with the end goal of achieving a vaginal delivery. There are various methods by which induction of labor can be undertaken, including the administration of prostaglandins or oxytocin, amniotomy or rupturing the bag of waters, mechanical dilation of the cervix or ancillary outpatient procedures such as membrane stripping, which is where manually the examiner will swipe a finger across the membranes in front of the baby's head in the middle of the cervix. So what are some reasons that we might want to induce labor in a pregnant woman? The induction of labor may be indicated for a variety of reasons, including situations where the risks of fetal compromise outweigh the benefits of continuing the pregnancy or in the event of significant maternal health risks associated with continuing the pregnancy. Some examples of indications for for labor are included as follows. So abruptio placentae is when the placenta separates off the wall of the uterus and compromises fetal circulation, cholestasis of pregnancy, chorioamnionitis, infection of the placenta and membranes, elective, so indications for an elective C-sections may in be psychosocial, distance from hospital, risk of rapid labor, um, can be performed 39 weeks gestation due to increased risk of neonatal morbidity and mortality if before that. Also, gestational hypertension intrauterine fetal demise, multiple gestation, preeclampsia, eclampsia, eclampsia or HELP syndrome, so premature rupture of membranes, post-term pregnancy, maternal medical conditions like antiphospholipid syndrome, chronic hypertension, chronic lung disease, diabetes mellitus renal disease, fetal compromise, which can be indicated by fetal growth restriction, oligohydramnios, such as in this patient, alloimmunization with fetal effects, etc., And also other induction uh, indications can be fetal conditions that require immediate intervention at birth. For example, a complex cardiac anomaly that needs immediate cardiac catheterization the minute that the baby is born. So... Some of these indications are listed and some of them are not, but it's important to recognize that any indication is not absolute and mustn't take into account the balance between the potential benefits of an expedited delivery and the potential maternal and fetal risk of continuing the pregnancy in addition to the risk of the induction process itself. A little clinical pearl. The gestational age at which induction of labor is recommended varies according to each individual patient, but there are some general guidelines that exist for common indications. Although elective induction should not occur before 39 weeks gestation, there's many clinical situations in which non-elective inductions are recommended prior to 39 weeks as the risks of continuing the pregnancy outweigh the potential benefits in these situations. For example, it's recommended that fetuses with oligohydramnios be delivered at 37 weeks or 36 weeks even. Uncomplicated dichorionic diamniotic twins should be delivered at 38 weeks. Monochorionic diamniotic twins should be delivered at 34 to 37 weeks. And monochorionic monoamniotic twins should be delivered at 32 to 34 weeks. So what are some contraindications to induction of labor? As with the indications, the contraindications must take into consideration the individual clinical scenario. Really broadly speaking, the contraindications to labor induction are the contraindications to a vaginal delivery. That is, you shouldn't induce labor typically in situations that involve maternal and fetal risks that are greater with labor and vaginal delivery than they are with cesarean delivery. Some examples to contraindications to labor induction are active herpes genital infection, complete placenta previa. Invasive cervical cancer, prior classical or other high-risk cesarean section. So because of the risk of that scar coming apart, prior myomectomy entering the endometrial cavity, again, because of the risk of uterine rupture, prior uterine rupture, a transverse fetal lie, an umbilical cord prolapse, and previa. So how can the likelihood of a successful induction be determined? There's actually a lot of factors that are associated with increased likelihood of vaginal delivery success. And these include multi-parity gestational age and the status of the cervix. Currently, the best available clinical predictive tool is something called the Bishop Pelvic Scoring System, which is used to assess the status of the cervix and determine the probability of a successful induction, i.e., a successful vaginal delivery. The modified Bishop score is a tool most commonly used in clinical practice in the United States, and it provides a score based on four cervical examination findings, dilation, effacement, station, and consistency. So for dilation, you get a score of 0 if it's closed, 1 if it's 1 to 2 centimeters, 2 if it's 3 to 4 centimeters, and 3 if it's 5 to 6 centimeters. For effacement, you get 0 score again if it's up to 30% effaced, 1 if it's 40 to fifty. Two if it's 60 to 70, and 3 if it's 80% or greater. For station of the fetus, you get a score of 0 if it's negative 3 or 3 centimeters above the ischial spines, 1 if it's negative 2, score of 2 if it's negative 1 or 0 at the ischial spines, three if it's plus one or plus two, so beyond the ischial spines. For cervical consistency, you get a score of zero if it's firm, one if it's medium, and two if it's soft. And for cervical position, you get a score of zero if it's posterior, one if it's mid-position, and two if it's anterior. An unfavorable cervix on that Bishop score is defined as a Bishop score of 6 or less, which increases the likelihood that induction will not result in a successful vaginal delivery. A noliparous patient undergoing induction of labor with an unfavorable cervix has a twofold higher risk of a cesarean delivery compared to a noliparous patient in spontaneous labor. A Bishop score of more than 8 is associated with a similar likelihood of a vaginal delivery as to when labor was spontaneous. So let's go back to our patient here. On physical exam, because of course, we're going to do that to obsess her, the estimated fetal weight by Leopold maneuvers is 3,500 grams. The maternal pelvis appears adequate, but the patient's cervix is known to be closed, so she gets zero score for that, 50% of face, so she gets one point, and negative three station, which she gets zero points for. The fetal heart rate is category one, and the patient is not experiencing uterine contractions, so she doesn't have a very favorable Bishop score. So what do we call cervical ripening, and how can that be performed? Cervical remodeling naturally occurs as an important part of normal parturition. It involves enzyme-mediated collagen breakdown and increase in water content and other hormone-mediated chemical and structural changes in the cervix. For an unfavorable cervix, like the one in our patient, which exists in the absence of these changes, cervical ripening involves the use of medications or techniques to facilitate physical softening of the cervix in addition to partial thinning, or what we call effacement, and dilation. As induction is likely to be ineffective in a woman with an unfavorable cervix, as we talked about when we were discussing the Bishop score, cervical ripening is general employed prior to the induction of labor in order to increase the likelihood of a successful vaginal delivery and decrease the induction to delivery time. Techniques for cervical ripening generally are in two categories. They're either mechanical methods like hygroscopic dilators, osmotic dilators, classically called laminaria japonicum transcervical Foley balloon dilators, double balloon devices, and extra amniotic saline infusion. There's also cervical ripening agents, which is the other category. These are things like synthetic prostaglandin E1, prostaglandin E2. Misoprostol is a synthetic PGE1, prostaglandin E1. It's an analog that can be used for both cervical ripening and induction of labor. PGE2 preparations include a dinoprostone gel and a dinoprostone vaginal insert. For women undergoing a scheduled induction of labor with an unfavorable cervix, clinical outcomes appear to be similar whether a transcervical balloon catheter or a prostaglandin E1 or E2 analog is used for cervical ripening. So let's talk about a clinical pearl. This is for steps two and three. Prostaglandin analogs such as mesoprostol have an important role in obstetrics apart from labor induction. Mesoprostol is used to prevent and treat postpartum hemorrhage and is most effective for this purpose when administered rectally. Mesoprostol binds to myometrial cells causing smooth muscle contraction and hemostasin at the site of placentation. The most common adverse effects are gastrointestinal, usually diarrhea or abdominal pain. Carboprost, a prostaglandin F2-alpha analog, is also available as an intramuscular injection for treating postpartum hemorrhage, and that can be given in repeat doses, 15 to 90 minute intervals when managing an ongoing hemorrhage after delivery. So what are some risks associated with cervical ripening and induction of labor? The use of both prostaglandin analogs and oxytocin can result in uterine tachysystole with or without fetal heart rate changes. Tachysystole is defined as an average of greater than five uterine contractions in a 10-minute period, and that's averaged over a 30-minute period. This effect is principally dose-related with both mesoprostol and oxytocin. And if it's persistent, it can lead to category 2 or 3 fetal heart rate tracings or evidence of fetal compromise. Due to the significant risk of uterine rupture, mesoprostol should be avoided in women in the third trimester who've had a prior cesarean delivery or any major uterine surgery where the endometrium was entered. So now we're going to talk about some tracings, and I know this is a little tricky over a podcast, but we're going to mention a little bit about uterine tachycystole. Usually, a patient will have a monitor on her belly called a tocometer. The tocometer measures electrical signals that correspond to muscle contraction. A patient that has uterine contractions or a rise in the tocometer activity that's happening very frequently, let's say eight every 10 minutes, would be considered to have tachycystole if that's averaged over 30 minutes. Usually, in the case of prostaglandin administration, these contractions will be very small and very closely spaced together. If the tachycystole is natural, usually the contractions will be a little bit longer and not quite so spaced together. So let's also talk about some categorical of fetal tracing. You can have different kinds of fetal heart rate decelerations. Note the way that decelerations appear to mirror uterine contractions when we call them early decelerations. Those are due to the squeezing of the fetal head and changes in the fetal brain when the head is noticing increased pressure with the contraction. In an early deceleration, the fetal heart rate drops and reaches a nadir about 20 to 30 below the baseline at the very peak of the contraction and returns the baseline as the contraction resolves. There's also something called variable decelerations which are very rapid or steep decelerations that also correspond to the peak of the contraction but don't take quite as long to get down to their nadir as early decelerations. There's also something called late decelerations which are more concerning and correspond to a type three, category three, fetal heart rate tracing. Note the timing of the onset neighbor and recovery of these decelerations, which occur after the onset peak or even after the end of a contraction. Those are more concerning. So hypotension, interestingly, can occur following rapid oxytocin infusion. And you usually can avoid hypotension by uh, ensuring that a dilute infusion is used, even immediately postpartum. Other rare complications from oxytocin include uterine rupture, usually from tachycystole or over contraction, and water intoxication because of all the water that's being infused in a dilute. Water intoxication may result if oxytocin is used in high concentrations and used with large quantities of hypotonic solutions. So what are some important criteria to consider and document before labor is even induced? So it's important to evaluate the potential risks to both the mother and the fetus prior to induction of labor. A thorough review of the patient's medical and pregnancy history should be undertaken in addition to a detailed assessment of maternal and fetal condition prompting the induction in order to ensure that the indication is appropriate identify any possible contraindications to labor or contraindications to using certain medicines like prostaglandins or oxytocin. You also want to look for possible contraindications to a vaginal delivery at all. You don't want success to be a bad thing. Pre-induction and pre-oxytocin checklists have been published to assist with this assessment and can be very useful and standardize the assessment across patients. The gestational age and the method by which the gestational age was calculated should be reviewed and documented in the patient's chart prior to the start of an induction in order to minimize the risk of neonatal morbidity and mortality due to incorrect dating. Keep in mind that dates that have been made by second trimester ultrasound are plus or minus two weeks off. If they've been made by first trimester crown rump length, they're usually within a few days accurate. If they're made by IVF transfer, they're usually completely accurate just to give an idea. The estimated fetal weight, either by Leopold's or by a recent ultrasound, should also be considered, including the potential for dystocia or mismatch of the fetal size with the maternal pelvis. At the time of admission for induction, a focused physical exam should include an assessment of the patient's cervical exam, like we already did, a confirmation of the fetal position, remember we want the fetus to be head down, and an assessment of the fetal heart rate and contraction patterns. Remember we talked about various types of decelerations. Obviously, we want the fetus to have a category one fetal heart rate tracing, meaning it has moderate variability, no variable or late decelerations, and ideally accelerations that occur regularly across the tracing. Finally, the indications for induction of labor should be reviewed with a patient and the details involving the induction process techniques and risks should be discussed. This includes the potential need for a cesarean delivery and a physician capable of performing a cesarean delivery should be readily available during the induction of labor. So let's go back to our patient now. This patient undergoes cervical ripening with 25 micrograms of vaginal mesoprostol. One hour later, her nurse notifies you that the patient has experienced contraction every minute and the fetal heart rate demonstrates a baseline of 150 per minute, which is a normal baseline with absent variability and recurrent late decelerations. So not only have we loss of variability, but recurrent lates, which is a category three fetal heart rate tracing. So how should this patient's tachycystole, because it's very frequent, and abnormal fetal heart rate tracing be managed in the short term? Because of this Category 3 fetal heart rate tracing, defined as either a sinusoidal heart rate pattern or the presence of absent fetal baseline variability with recurrent late decels like this patient, in this case, routine Intrauterine resuscitative measures should be employed immediately, and that encourages maternal repositioning in the left lateral decubitus, something that allows for the uterus to not inhibit venous return to the mother's heart and to the placenta, an intravenous fluid bolus, particularly if there's hypotension in the mother, and supplemental oxygen administration to the mother by nasal cannula. Although this patient is not receiving oxytocin, for patients who are, the infusion should be decreased or discontinued immediately if this situation arises. Subcutaneous terbutaline may also be used in an attempt to resolve the tachosystole and correct the abnormal fetal heart rate tracing as soon as possible. There's no response to these measures, such as ongoing Category 3. So that would be, again, recurrent late decelerations, recurrent variable decelerations, or bradycardia with absent fetal heart rate variability, then the cesarean delivery should be considered urgently. So clinical pearl, steps two and three. There are four types of fetal heart rate decelerations according to the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, NICHD. Each of which represents a different physiological occurrence. We talked about how these look just a moment ago. So early decelerations represent a fetal autonomic response to changes in intercranial cerebral blood flow caused by transient compression to the fetal head. Because they correspond to squeezing of the fetal head, they always correspond to the shape of the contraction, sort of like the early and the contraction point at each other. Late decelerations represent a transient disruption of oxygen transferred to the fetus, resulting in transient hypoxemia, and are seen in situations involving uteroprocental insufficiency. Our patient developed these when she was started on her induction. So that's why we were concerned and doing resuscitative measures. Variable decelerations represent a transient disruption of oxygen transfer from the environment to the fetus at the level of the umbilical cord and are indicative of cord compression. Prolonged decelerations represent a disruption of oxygen transfer from the environment to the fetus at one or more points along the oxygen pathway. So it's being interrupted at multiple points and prolonged decelerations are very concerning. After employing intrauterine resuscitated measures in this patient, the tachycystole and fetal heart rate tracing both resolve. After one hour of a category one tracing, so now we have moderate variability, we have no decelerations and we're reassured. We perform a cervical examination, which reveals a dilation of one centimeter and effacement of 50% and a station of negative three. Then we place a transcervical Foley balloon catheter for cervical ripening. This is a Foley balloon that is blown up to approximately 60 to 80 centimeters of water and then is left on tension or without tension in the cervix to mechanically push outward the cervix for dilation. Eight hours later, the Foley balloon catheter is spontaneously expelled and the patient's cervical exam demonstrates a dilation of four centimeters, effacement of 60% and a station of negative one. An amniotomy is performed a rupture of the membranes and an oxytocin infusion is initiated. 12 hours later, the patient has received an epidural for analgesia and is experiencing contractions every two to three minutes. Her nurse tells you she is receiving the maximum dose of oxytocin. A cervical examination demonstrates that her cervix is unchanged with a dilation of four centimeters, effacement of 60%, and a station of negative one. So how is a failed induction diagnosed? How do we know? The normal progression of labor for a woman undergoing induction differs significantly from that of a woman undergoing spontaneous labor. As such, allowing a longer period of what we call latent labor before diagnosing a failed induction may reduce the risk of cesarean delivery. A failed induction is generally defined as a failure to generate regular contractions with cervical change after at least 24 hours of oxytocin administration. Artificial rupture of membranes should occur if safe and feasible. If after rupture of membranes, regular contractions and cervical chains do not occur at 12 hours of oxytocin administration, an induction may be considered a failure. The time involved in cervical ripening should not be included when determining the length of induction or when diagnosing a failed induction. In this patient's case, it's reasonable to offer a cesarean delivery at this time due to a diagnosis of failed induction because she's gone more than 12 hours since amniotomy and despite generating regular contractions is not changing. So let's go beyond the pearls. A labor induction for a nulliparous patient, a woman who's never given birth, with an unfavorable cervix can be a multi-day affair that requires patience on the part of the patient and provider. It can be helpful to set this expectation when starting the induction process, especially in situations where multiple cervical ripening techniques are required. Amniotomy may be ineffective as a standalone method of labor induction, but it requires that the cervix be dilated. When performing an amniotomy, the risk of umbilical cord prolapse can be reduced by ensuring that the fetal head is presenting, meaning down, engaged, meaning up against the cervix, and well applied, with no umbilical cord or other fetal parts presenting. Almost 30% of mothers who gave birth to a singleton infant reporting using a non-medical intervention to try to start labor, such as walking, sexual intercourse, nipple stimulation, castor oil, and herbal therapies. Unfortunately, these methods and their efficacy have not been thoroughly evaluated, so they're not evidence-based at this time. Let's do a quick case summary for this patient. So we met a 31-year-old G1P0 woman, a nulliparous woman, at 37 weeks gestation, who was admitted for a scheduled induction of labor due to pregnancy complicated by oligohydramnios, or low fluid around the baby. On physical examination, the patient's cervix was closed, 50% effaced, and a negative 3 station, so unfavorable. She underwent cervical ripening with 25 micrograms of vaginal mesoprostol. An hour later, the patient was experiencing tachycystole with a Category 3 tracing. After employing some intrauterine resuscitative measures, the tachycystole and fetal heart rate tracing both resolved. A transcervical Foley balloon catheter was placed and spontaneously expelled eight hours later. The patient's cervical exam demonstrated a dilation of four centimeters, effacement 60% and a station of negative one. An amniotomy is performed and an oxytocin infusion was initiated. Twelve hours later, the patient received an epidural for analgesia and was experiencing contractions every two to three minutes on the maximum dose of oxytocin. A cervical examination demonstrates her cervix was unchanged, again dilated four centimeters, 60% of face, station negative one. She underwent a primary cesarean delivery due to diagnosis of a failed induction of labor. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.